This is episode number 455 with Horace Wu, the founder and director of Cynthia. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and we are lucky to be joined today by the fabulously interesting Horace Wu. Horace is an Australian who trained as a lawyer in Sydney and spent more than a decade working as an attorney. After advising countless tech companies, he caught the entrepreneurship bug himself and today lives in New York as founder and director of his second startup, a machine learning company called Cynthia. Cynthia cleverly combines machine vision and natural language processing models together in order to provide real-time guidance and instant, airtight, automatically generated clauses to lawyers as they read and draft contracts. During this episode, Horace fills us in on how natural language processing algorithms are finally reaching a point where huge opportunities are emerging for commercial machine learning applications in the legal tech space. He also provides practical guidance on how to successfully bootstrap and then scale up a tech startup without diluting your ownership to outside investors. This episode will be of interest to anyone who's interested in learning about innovative commercial applications of data science or launching an AI startup from scratch, even if you don't have any formal scientific or technical background. We also do get into the weeds a little bit here and there for you hands-on practitioners, including discussing cutting-edge software stacks for training and deploying machine vision and NLP algorithms into production systems that require real-time model feedback. Horace, wonderful to have you on the Super Data Science Show. Welcome. John, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. So... You and I have known each other for a surprisingly long time. We met 14 years ago. I did the math just a second ago. Mm -hmm. We met 14 years ago in Oxford in the United Kingdom. I was in the first days of my graduate studies at Oxford University, and you were visiting a friend, uh, and we went to what they call a BOP. Do you remember what mm -hmm. the BOP was all about that night? Uh, it might have been a Christmas bop. I do a distinctly. Christmas bop. Oh, yeah. Right. Mariah was Carey was played. There was mulled wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, for listeners who from our, are from outside the UK, a bop is just a party. Yeah. But for some reason, if it's held by the university, they call it a bop. And it's a surprising amount of fun. Something that's interesting about, at least at Oxford, maybe in the UK in general, my English, is it, I was in England for five years, but my entire time was as a graduate student at Oxford. So what I think is English, I could be completely wrong. But an interesting thing is in the US and Canada, where I've spent most of my life, the only party in a year that anybody dresses up in terms of a costume is a Halloween party. 
Right. But in Oxford, at these bops, almost every single one has a theme. Yep. It's a great opportunity to really stretch test your wardrobe. And <laughs> we don't really have those in Australia either. It's, it's just- Really? We, yeah. We don't really even have Halloween dress-ups like you might do as a kid. Um, and I think that is much to the detriment of the, of the Australian party culture. Yeah, it's really fun dressing up for a party. It makes it, yeah, I think it's it's something that we should try to get going, which actually now you and I could. So we've touched on this. So we met a long time ago, ancient history in England. You are Australian, if people couldn't tell from your accent, and you spent most of your life in Australia. But in fact, now we both live on the island of Manhattan yes, and we, we should be instituting costumed bops. Well, as soon as COVID is over, John, uh, you can count me in as guest number one. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, so you've been in New York for a while. Tell us what you're doing here. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, New York is an interesting story. This is actually my second stint in New York. I was in New York in 2007 to 2009. And I, I was, oh, yeah, that's when, that. we, when we met. And mm -hmm. I was a lawyer back then. Um, and this is my second stint. We moved here about two and a half years ago. And the reason we moved here was because my wife said, well, you've lived in New York, so now it's my turn. And that's why we <laughs> moved here. Australians always want to spend some chunk of their life far afield. I think half of them end up in New York and the other half end up in, Wish in Whistler, in Whistler <laughs> British Columbia. <laughs> Um, yes, yes, we do. We do. I think it's it's not so much because Australia is a terrible place to be, despite you know what the British might tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful place, but it is far away from the rest of the world. And Australians, being adventurous people, they like to go around and see new things and try new things. So you end up with a large cohort living overseas at any one time. Yeah, but so while you're here. You are, you have a fascinating role and I'm so excited to have you on the program and, and to dig into exactly what you're doing. But so you founded a company called Cynthia. So we've, you've, we've touched yes. on how you used to be a lawyer, yes. but now you are the founder and head. <laughs> you call yourself the managing director. Yes, I wanted I to call you the head yes. honcho. <laughs> um, you're going to inflate my ego too much if you call me that. Um, but it, so the company is called Cynthia. It's yes. it's spelt wonderfully. So it sounds like the woman's name, Cynthia, but it's spelt like synthetic. Um, yes, S y n t h e i a Cynthia. Correct. And Cynthia is a machine learning platform. Correct. It's uh, specialized in legal data. Um, so Cynthia actually comes from the Latin words because lawyers love Latin words for oh. together and knowledge. So Cynthia. Oh. And, and so what oh. we, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a story behind Did not know everything. That. Mm. I, I rarely get to tell that story. Uh, people don't usually have the patience to listen to it. And well, so that's, that's why we welcomed you onto the Latin Roots podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let me get out my dictionary to tell you more of the origins. <laughs> um, so, so we, we specialize in uh, taking legal documents and legal behavior and plotting them and mapping them to bits of data that can be reused by law firms and by lawyers. Um, so it's a platform that is designed 
to turn what is quite impenetrable information into reusable data that can be mapped to different purposes. Nice. So as an example, um, I've seen lots of really smooth demos of the platform. So, you know, the way that you described it was a bit in the abstract. Yes. But to give an example of what I've seen, you can be, you could be in a Word document, which I imagine lawyers are in a lot of their workday, mm -hmm. and you're typing up a contract and you'd like to have a clause on intellectual property, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you're like, oh, it would be such a pain for me to write this clause from scratch. Mm -hmm. But I bet somebody in my firm has written a clause like what I need before. Yes. And then you can, you could maybe write just the words intellectual property and, or, or write a, a sentence or something that's roughly what you need to be covering in this clause. And then like highlight that text and press a button in Word and then it activates Cynthia. Correct, correct. So John, you, you've, you've asked a really good question, which is how does it actually work? What does it actually do for people? Um, so it's based on the idea that lawyers, they need knowledge. And the more knowledge they have, the better the work is going to be. So we try and build our software in such a way that it fits in the workflow of a lawyer. And most of that workflow is inside of Microsoft Word. So the, the example you just gave is finding a, a prior precedent that addresses a concept so that a lawyer would have a reference point when they're trying to address a new case or um, satisfy a uh, a new need. Um, and there are multiple use cases for this type of technology. Um, the drafting one is one example. There are, there are others, such as if you are reviewing a document for the first time and you want to find things that are red flags, you know from previous deals what those red flags are. And so the machine has already seen your behavior and mapped out, well, when you see words like this in a document like that, raise a red flag because that should not be there. Um, and then you can do other things like, um, yeah, yeah, saving you time. I didn't know about that. That's cool. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Yeah, I should let the audience know that I am not a completely benign observer of Cynthia. So I've known about Cynthia for many years and I've been informally providing advice on, mm -hmm. on machine learning stuff to Cynthia for a long time. So I'm not a completely unbiased spectator, but I actually, we haven't caught up in pretty oh. much since COVID hit over a year ago. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm way out of data on anything that Cynthia is doing. So, um, yeah, so I, be, I always think of Cynthia as this ability to bring clauses up to bring, to to have related documents come up mm. but uh, yeah the red flagging that's also a really cool use case yeah yeah and it comes back to the idea of if you have that data already mapped out if you already have that database of information reusing it is a matter of 
just repurposing the front end and repurposing your queries to that database. Nice. Um, so as somebody who, so let's talk a little bit about your background. So you were a lawyer for many years. Yes. And how did you first get a bug? How did you first get this like machine learning bug? When did you figure out that what I needed to be doing was learning as much as I can about machine learning? And we're going to get into the technical detail later in this uh, podcast. Sure. I've been blown away in conversation with you before about how hands-on and knowledgeable Horace is about, about software and data science. So we're going to dig into all of that stuff. But tell us, how did you... How did you make that transition? What was it like? John, first, you flatter me too much, and thank you very much. Um, as to my background, I actually was a lawyer for more than a decade. Um, and during the kind of latter half of that, a lot of my friends were asking me for business-style advice, commercial-style advice, simply because of my role as a corporate M&A lawyer. And what I did the bug was well hang on if i'm giving all of this advice out and i'm helping all my friends i want to try this for myself so at the end of 2000 <laughs> you just you just kind of go well might as well right um and and so at the end of 2016 there was a kind of a divergence or a fork in the path where i could stay at the law firm and try for partnership the path that most lawyers would pursue and there was a, a separate path of what well, i could go and do something else whatever that happens to be. And I, I decided to take 12 months off and I started a, uh, a company which was called Viva. Um, Viva? Yeah. I yeah. don't know if you remember now this. Now I remember. I'd forgotten about this completely. Yes. Yes. It yeah. was a, a, it was a uh, events entertainment recommendation app for consumers. And what we right. did, mm, very much like Netflix, it learns what your preferences are and then it made recommendations <laughs> to you. But for real life events, because back then you can actually go and see people and do things. Um, so that was when <laughs> that was when I I left the law to create that company um, to run that. Sadly, that didn't go anywhere because six months after we launched, Google and Facebook both launched their events equivalents. So we were like, "All right, uh, let's let's just shut up shop and." That's uh, that was a little bit of a sad story, but also learned a lot from doing that. Um, and Cynthia, actually, yeah, and it shows that you were right on the money with a business idea. Well, thank you. Yes, I, you I, were right I feel on the money like, with a business idea. Yeah, a little, a little too early or too late. I'm, I'm not sure. Sometimes, depending on on what frame of reference you're looking at. <laughs> um, and so, so Cynthia was my second one. Um, we started that almost by accident. Um, a good friend of mine is a data scientist for a German company that does NLP. Um, and we were meeting one day for a coffee in Sydney, and he wanted some help looking at US leases, property leases, um, because one of their customers at the time wanted to review these documents, and they had no idea what you know leases actually contain and what they do. So... After a four-hour coffee, I sent him a, a five-page document that said, if you have this technology, you should not be doing simple doc review and pulling out dates and figures. That's, that's a really low-level task. Do X, Y, and Z, and it's much more sophisticated, much more valuable for lawyers and businesses. And then I think within a week or two weeks, his CEO called me and said, do you want to build this together? And that's kind of how we started Cynthia. Wow. Mm. 
That is a long coffee four hours. You it was a very interesting holes. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I mean, your life is now, that's been, it's been three years now that you've been doing yeah. Cynthia full time. Yeah, that's Which right. is, yeah, which I think is really amazing. And the way that you have been, I think bootstrapping is the word to use. The way that you've been bootstrapping Cynthia, I think that this is an interesting story for anybody who might like to found a business. If you're listening to this pro program, it's probably going to be some kind of data science or machine learning business. So, you know, Cynthia is a machine learning business, but actually that part of it doesn't necessarily matter. It's just, just this idea of how can you bootstrap effectively? And I love what you've been doing, which is that you still have another job to bring mm -hmm. in some income. Mm -hmm. And so that other job actually is pretty darn interesting too, if you don't mind yes, telling us a bit about your right. That's right. So my other job is I'm the assistant general counsel for a company called Neomap, which is an Australian aerial imagery company. And what they do is they fly planes around the world, predominantly in the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, capture uh, photos of the ground, and then use that data to extract more valuable information. Things like, you know, uh, is there a pool in the backyard? Is there X, Y, or Z? And and this sort of data um, is really valuable for anyone who's in the geospatial space. Um, so so that's my other role. I am the assistant GC, um, and that helps pay for all the developers and all the work that needs to be done on Cynthia, while Cynthia is in the state of just piloting really small revenue contracts. Nothing that would by itself, sustain the cost of development. Yeah, so Nearmap, just to talk about them for like one more minute. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Horace isn't emphasizing how big of a deal they are. So they are a huge, they're, I, they might be Australia's most successful tech startup right now. Um, uh, apart from Atlassian, apart from Atlassian and Canva, oh, I would oh. say it's up there. The Australians have a few really big startups, but uh, as to listed um, startups that are really focused on data science. I, I wouldn't say Atlassian's focus on data science, nor would I say Canva, um, right. but right. for Australian, Australian tech companies that are focused on data and data science, I would say Neomap is among the top three. Um, and certainly no other Australian company is doing that sort of work with aerial imagery. Yeah, and it's so one of the market leaders, I think, in terms of aerial imagery. So a huge number of patents, a lot of intellectual property around um, being able to stitch together at an extremely high resolution all of this aerial footage. Mm. And the data science piece of that, I think, is something that's happened secondarily, but mm -hmm. is an obvious use case now of the machine vision that we have. So since 2012, having this AlexNet deep learning architecture and all of the other deep learning architectures that have arisen since, we can have extremely accurate machine vision models if we have high quality training data and Nearmap has nice. oodles and oodles of high quality training data. Um, yeah. I can only imagine what like the cloud compute bills are like. For oh, well, I, <laughs> I, I know the answer to that, but it's not something I can disclose. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to, to get that out of you, but I can, I, with how much data there is, you know, I, so not only is it expensive, but it does mean that you're going to end up with a great high quality machine learning model. 
And so you can do these kinds of things. So, so you can sell models to, like you said, detect pools. Um, and so this kind of information is useful for private and public sector clients alike, right? To predict, um, you know, to be able to price properties or assess things. I don't know. There's endless uses for being able to survey land um, yeah. with a machine vision driven assessment. Well, and it's it's a, it's like a lot of data science, right? If you were to get a human being to do the same work, it would take them days or weeks. Whereas if you've got a machine to do it, it takes minutes. Um, and the data quality is probably going to be as high, if not better, than the human the human labor. Yeah, because the human fatigues. Like, how can you like for someone it, for to be someone's job for a month to every minute of the workday be looking for swimming pools? in footage like your mind's gonna drift and you're gonna miss a bunch of pools and no one will ever know and so yeah i wouldn't be surprised if machines can do that better than a person all right so anyway we don't need to talk about your map because that isn't that isn't the star of the show today the star of the show is cynthia well and you but uh cynthia and horace together uh <laughs> dancing through the podcast episode you make us sound like a married couple which we kind of are <laughs> your your wife probably would agree with, uh, assessment. it's her birthday today so let's not let's not tell her that <laughs> oh that's funny well thank you very much for taking the time to do this and we do actually i know that we do eventually have a hard stop though we're still quite a ways from it quite or your wife's birthday dinner mm. but um uh, between now and then, we still have plenty of time to cover uh, really cool things about Cynthia, natural language processing, and the technology that you're using, and even just how to yes. commercialize companies like Cynthia. So um, let's talk about that. Let's dig into these examples of Cynthia. So you're using natural language processing. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a bit about one or two of the big use cases of NLP that Cynthia allows. Yeah, I think I think maybe maybe if it's okay with you, I'll start with the background on the legal sector and why the legal That's landscape. Yeah, it it mm -hmm. does frame this conversation a lot. So the legal sector, uh, as you may rightly guess, is rather antiquated when it comes to technology and when it comes to this type of technology. So you have a lot of law firms and a lot of companies out there where the legal department essentially just dumps all of their documents into a hard drive or a shared drive somewhere. So if you want to find information that's contained in these documents, you need to have either named them extraordinarily well or put metadata on them, or you need to look through every single document manually in order to find the information you need. It's worse than a, than a needle in a haystack. And over the last maybe 10 years, NLP has played a role in this segment of the market. Um, and NLP in the legal sector primarily works at what we call the macro and micro level. Um, the macro level, you might have people using NLP to look at a whole document and try and classify or other, otherwise categorize um, what that document is or what that document does. And at the micro level, you have people doing data extraction, things like party names, dates, dollars, that sort of information, which then becomes uh, become attributes of that whole document. And you find that these techniques can only take you so far because when you're looking at a whole document, which might be a few hundred pages, 
and then trying to classify that with one label, you're missing a lot of information. So we at Cynthia looked at this sort of behavior in the, the market and we said, well, hang on. That's not the best way of actually processing legal data. That's not how lawyers think. Lawyers don't go, aha, I'm going to hold in my mind a whole 200-page document and use that to do and perform a task. Lawyers are very much like any other people, human beings, professionals, who can retain only an X amount of information. Is that Not true? Mostly true. Lawyers, lawyers are, are like other people. Better. They're a little bit better. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. <laughs> but we, we, you know, we're not superhuman um, by by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> and so so we can only retain so much information in our heads, and that type of information would usually exist at the paragraph level or at a sentence level. Um, lawyers write in super long sentences, so sometimes they're synonymous, synonymous, um, and for the technology that exists today to process at either macro or micro, you're missing all of this rich information that human beings actually think in. At the conceptual level, this paragraph does X. Um, and so Cynthia really uses machine learning in two key ways. First is we break large documents down into what we call meaningful chunks of information your paragraphs, your sections, your sentences. And then we use uh, NLP to then read the words in those chunks of information to then give them actual useful meaning. And we can dive into what we do with the NLP a little bit later if you would like. Nice. Yeah, I would love to. So, um, so there's a machine vision and an NLP element. And typically starting with that machine vision to figure out where the chunks are on the document visually that's clever. Um, so in the natural language processing space, a typical initial first step is to take a Word document or a PDF or whatever and just convert it into plain text Yes, and then work from there. That is the kind of the standard. So to have this initial step of, doing, uh, of using machine vision to visually recognize chunks first uh, done properly, I can imagine you get um, much better results in terms of being able to recognize where those chunks are. And you get to segment ideas before they're conflated into a single string. So if you, if you were to take one example, in a lot of legal contracts, you would have maybe 30, 40 different clauses, each of which, which deal with a different set of circumstances. It's only triggered if certain things become true. If you were to process that document without first segmenting it, you end up with this kind of really fuzzy document. Um, whereas if you segment it first, you end up with 30 very distinct ideas that are much easier and much uh, more meaningful to deal with. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so uh, you've given us that frame of reference, but uh, I guess, I mean, I guess we've also already kind of talked about case studies. You talked about being able to uh, provide red flags. So, so you can train a model or fine tune a model mm. to, there's a number of levels actually, now that I think about it. So um, we have in the natural language processing space, 
it's common to use a language model that's trained on all of the English on the internet or all the English in Wikipedia. Yes. And in your case, I imagine you want to fine tune that the, the language, the weights in this big natural language model based on legal language in particular. And then perhaps one step further, you could even fine tune the model based on a particular law firm's proprietary database of documents. Um, so uh, law firms can be gigantic. And I imagine in your case, many of this, the, these kinds of tools that you're suggesting, these machine learning tools, you're probably not expecting your early adopters to be um, a law firm with one or two employers. You're expecting probably the big law firms. I don't know, That's they right. must have tens of thousands of employees at the big ones. Mm, they, they, the largest law firms in the world may have 10,000. Um, right. It's law firm, the legal sector is highly fragmented. Um, and you raise a really good point, John, and that is um, what we use the language models for um, and how we train the language models. We deploy the language models privately with a law firm. Um, we do not have shared language models between law firms because of the confidential nature of the data. And that's something Got quite it. unique to the legal sector. Um, so when we deploy stuff, we do fine tune if the law firm let us um, on their documents and their data. And a large law firm may have somewhere north of 100 million documents in their database, right. which is a very rich source of information if you want to then refine Agreed. your language. Model. Especially if they're big documents, like you're talking about 100-page documents in some cases. That's right. It's a huge amount of natural language data. That's right. And so once you fine tune, <laughs> not every law firm is willing to go that far. Um, and in fact, I would say at the moment, given the state of the technology, very few are. But we see the trend is people will be more willing. Um, and we think over the next decade, this will almost become the norm. Nice. Okay. So we've talked about machine vision aspects, natural language aspects, fine tuning these big language models. Mm. Um, and yeah, do you feel there's any other specific case studies other than you know being able to identify red flags in language that you might not want an mm. individual lawyer to have? So having that pop up automatically. So mm. in the same, I guess that's kind of similar to the way that uh, people that any but consumer has with a Microsoft product or a Google Office product, you have something that pops up when you make a spelling or grammar mistake. Yes. This is similar, but it's like, this is a legal mistake. Right, are, right. It's conceptual. You should not be giving away X in this scenario. So uh, in terms of use cases, this might be a really good segue to talk about how we design applications for lawyers and how we go about building our software. Um, and it's not driven by, sad to say, it's not driven by how awesome the science is and, and how <laughs> wonderful we can you know, use this NLP model to achieve things that no one has done before. Um, because we are a business, we do have to design first from the perspective of well, what use case are we addressing and how do we fit within the way lawyers work. And when you monitor and, and look at how lawyers work today, most of their work is done inside of Microsoft Word. They exist inside of two key pieces of software, Microsoft Word and Microsoft Outlook. That's kind of your ecosystem for, for lawyers. And so when we design stuff, we have to look at, well, what, what do they do today? And what do they want to achieve as the outcome? 
Therefore, map out their journey and go, here's where we will insert ourselves in this longer journey. Um, and the two use cases I've mentioned so far, which are helping lawyers revise and draft better clauses, are towards the end of the journey where they already have a client, they're negotiating, and they want to make sure that the words they put in the document reflect the outcome and will cause the outcome that they want. Whereas the red flags are towards mm. the start of the journey where they might be seeing a document for the first time or where they get a document back from their opposing counsel and they have to find, hmm, where has this person done a sneaky? And so that red flags report is a shorthand way of uh, taking advantage uh, of the firm's knowledge, not just the individual lawyer's knowledge, to go, hmm, this, this is bad. We should not be doing that. And here are the reasons why. And here's how we reacted in the past. Cool. I love that. That does sound like a superpower. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like something that could be hugely useful. Um, all right. So to make this happen, to have these kinds of tools show up in Outlook or Word, how do you do that? I have no idea. I mean, I'm used to like web apps. How do you yep. like get a button to appear in Microsoft Word? Yeah, so the Microsoft guys are actually quite good at this. They've made their add-ins um, all React.js based. So it oh. feels and you program it just like a web app. The infrastructure oh. that, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's probably a change over the last decade that you didn't used to be like this. Um, but now if you're a JavaScript developer, you can develop for the Microsoft suite. Um, and so mm. in, in our stack, um, when you mention web apps, it's very similar. We we start off with, well, this is a front end which is designed to sit inside a Microsoft Office Suite. And that plugs into uh, some software on the back end, server side that in our case, we use Node.js. Um, and that plugs into mm -hmm. a microservices um, ecosystem where you have specific modules that service different parts of your NLP pipeline. Um, and it all sits on top of a database that contains your legal knowledge. That's super cool. I had no idea. And, you know, that sounds very much like the stack that we use in my company for building web apps. Yeah, Node yeah. in the background, React on the front end. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you ever roll up your sleeves and get down and dirty in Python code yourself when you're building models? <laughs> You know, we talked about like the production deployments, but when you're designing these models or fine tuning these models, we're working in Python, right? We're working in Python if we're talking about NLP. Um, and we, uh, I'm very happy to say that my team does not have to suffer my terrible coding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> generally, my, my role is limited to writing out the logic and the pseudocode that says, hey, this is what we need to do in order to achieve this outcome. And the developers who are much better than I am at writing code then would actually make it work and then we'll, we'll collectively test, we'll collectively make sure it achieves a business outcome. But I sit more on the designed, um, design end of the spectrum um, and yeah, I, I try to keep as far away from the code as possible um, unless I'm doing a QA and I read something that is obviously wrong, in which case I will write a comment. Um, but the quality of my coding is a little subpar. You have, I mean, you have done some, I know you can write some code. I, I know it's something you've studied and 
being up to date on the latest and greatest in natural language processing, for example, is something that we've talked about before. Mm. Uh, for somebody who comes from a law background, I'm constantly blown away at how much you can really get into the weeds on the technology uh, that's being used on the back end and, you know, up and down the stack, actually. So, yeah, you are a tech founder. Um, despite I think the legal actually does help a little bit. There's a lot of parallels oh, yeah. between lawyers think and how programmers think. Um, oh. Yeah, and it's not obvious unless you've actually done both. And, you you know, in contract drafting, for example, you use definitions, which are very similar to functions inside of programs. You, you okay. write a function and then you just call it once. Well, you call it multiple times, but you only need to write it once. Right, 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 right. Uh, I had never thought of that. Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. Um, all right. But so if you're not writing the code yourself, yes. you have hired a team. So tell us a bit about that. Tell us about, you know, as much as you want about the team that you have and, um, you know, things like I know that they are entirely. So prior to COVID, this was a bit less common, but your team is entirely distributed right around the yeah. world. Yeah. And so maybe talk about how that works, how you operationalize a completely distributed company, and then what kinds of skill sets you have uh, to make this application work from the NLP all the way up to um, the React.js mm. uh, executing in Microsoft Word. Yeah, so I think we were lucky to start our company at a time where microservices became almost commonplace. And it really facilitated us um, building a team that does very specialized work, but then each part can stand on its own. Our team uh, has around 10 people, um, five, six are full-time, the others are part-time, um, and all of them are distributed around the world. So for us, the most important thing is communication. We are on Slack and Jira almost all the time. We keep each other posted on progress. We keep each other posted on our forecast and um, where we are in the sprint. Um, and what we try to do is we try to make it very clear at the start of every sprint what everyone's responsibilities are. Um, and so for our Python team, they work almost exclusively on the components that are used in NLP and, and machine vision or computer vision. And for our JavaScript team, they work exclusively on the front-end and back-end code, and they also do the database work because that's kind of historically where it made more sense for our team. Um, and when you look at where our team is based, our um, machine learning team is almost exclusively based out of Cairo. Um, and that's because not Whoa. by choice. Yeah, yeah. And, and we I get that reaction a lot when I say Cairo. People go, hang on, not Eastern Europe? Um, and we got lucky. <laughs> we, we, we found a, um, uh, a PhD who is a, a data scientist and he is an Egyptian. Uh, he's, in, he's Egyptian by background and he lives in Calgary in Canada. Um, and so we effectively hired people that used to be in his class when he was teaching in Cairo. Um, and so that's that's our NLP. Sorry, that's it. Yeah, NLP and, and Python team. Um, our JavaScript team um, is started in Australia. We had a uh, a really amazing fifteen year full stack developer. 
Um, and from him, we started then uh, hiring additional developers one at a time. And we went through this process of every new developer we bring on, we gave them a very distinct, discrete project for two weeks. Um, we we don't go through coding interviews. We don't go through you know what you might see in the big companies because we find that's not necessarily the best way to hire for us. For us, the personality really matters and how they collaborate really matters, which doesn't come out in an interview. So we put them on a two-week paid trial. We pay them for their work. They develop it. And then we decide after that, do they fit? Is the code good enough? And if so, they become a part of our team. And that's how we've organically grown um, who we have on, on a, this wonderful team that we have. Brilliant. So when you're recruiting, it's been largely through word of mouth, I guess, through people's connections. Uh, and yeah. then, yeah, and then you don't do much of a like a code test or much of an interview. It's kind of like, okay, you've been recommended. Let's try you for two weeks. It's it's a little bit more structured than that. Um, for the, I mean, I, I wish it were that easy, right? Um, for the for the NLP side, we were lucky because um, the kind of pivotal person we have on our team used to teach, and and so he knew, having known the people he recommended for years, whether they were good or not good. Um, on the JavaScript side, we do actually ask for a code, a code sample, and we review that. And usually from every 10 applicants, we reduce down to two. And then from those two, uh, we would test the one we'd like better for, for two weeks. And if that's good enough, we don't go to the second person, we just hire the first person. And if not, we go to the second person. Cool. All right. So tell us if you are looking to hire, um, mm -hmm. well, I guess you kind of told me what you're looking for, but so for our listeners, yes. if they're interested in building super cool state-of-the-art machine vision and natural language processing applications at a tech startup like yours, a machine learning startup like yours, what should they be doing? What skills should they learn or what skills should they be learning over the next few years? Yeah, that's a really interesting question um, because it, it it changes a lot. And I think um, the core skills that a developer and, and anyone in the data science space should have is understanding the problem um, and critical thinking. And I know it's kind of a buzzy to say critical thinking, but it's it's been able to interpret what someone actually wants when they tell you, I have a problem and it is X. Sometimes X is not the problem. Sometimes you have to dig deeper and scratch and really try and understand the underlying causes. So once you're able to do that, then the development and the problem-solving side is a little bit easier. Um, you know, and the, the NLP space moves so quickly that there are new libraries all the time, um, there are new methodologies and, and different ways of approaching things all the time. And so learning or rote learning something that exists today is probably not going to help you very much in five years' time. But Developing the skills to really understand a problem and developing the skills to try and think through and, and learn things rapidly are going to serve you way better in five years. Yeah, I mean, that's a very general answer, but it is a good and valuable answer. It makes perfect sense that like, <laughs> what skills should people be learning in the, in the years to come? Well, well all I mean, of them. 
any of them, but <laughs> specifically learning how to learn and critical thinking. Learning um, how to that learn. Makes I mean, I can I can tell you, yes, you absolutely need to learn Python, but it, that's that's kind of the baseline, right? And for us, um, you know, when you try and productionize things, you move from Python to Cython, and you kind of move away from these skills that um, are more commonly talked about. Um, but the ability to go, okay, I've identified a problem that this particular component is slower than it should be. And the way to overcome that is Cython. I've never dealt with that before, but I can read the documentation and figure it out. That is what is really going to set you apart as a, as an applicant, as a developer, as someone who works in the space. Well, let's touch on Cython for a second. Oh, gosh. Okay. So uh, the Cy <laughs> comes from the C at the beginning, which is related to the C programming language, right? That's right. Um, and so how does Cython, I've, I've never coded in Cython. I don't think I've ever seen Cython code. Hmm. How does it, does it look a lot like Python or how um, does it vary? Okay, so I can talk about this, but I would be a terrible person to talk about this. Um, I have seen Cython code only in passing. Um, what I yeah, know is- still better than what I know. Oh gosh, <laughs> I can barely read it. I um. I would say I'm conversant in Python, um, but in Cython, not at all. Um, <laughs> Donde es el gano in Python? <laughs> <laughs> Google Translate. Um, and, <laughs> and so one, one of our team at the moment is, is now learning Cython from scratch in order to solve this problem. Um, in, in, one of our, in, a, in one of our computer vision pipelines, it takes for some documents um, about five to eight seconds to OCR and understand the page layout. And we know that we can reduce that to less than half a second. And so that's why we're um, you know, refactoring the code and building a, a, a new piece. Beautiful. That is a great answer. I mean, that's, uh, that's a lot more than I knew before we started talking about Cython a few minutes ago. So Beautiful. Something to look into if you're looking to make your production Python code even faster. You just need to translate it into Cython. <laughs> Some low-level machine language. <laughs> right, right, right. Cool. Well, so with your journey, the way mm -hmm. that you have come from a legal background, and in a lot of ways, the legal is still a big part of your life. Uh, you know, you're still working at NearMap a bit. Uh, and obviously having a legal tech startup, um, legal is a big part of your life, but is there anything that you would do differently if you could looking back over your career? Over my career? No. Um, I think, I think I got really lucky because, um, I like being a lawyer. Uh, I, I like problem solving using the law. Um, and what I might change is different things I've done over the last couple of years, especially in the startup space. In the startup space is very much um, experimental. You do something, you see if it works, and then uh, you find out it doesn't, you learn a lesson, you pivot, you do something else, and you just keep iterating and, and learning more. Um, and some of the things that I did, I would look back and go, ah, oh, I wish I didn't do that. You know, I, I wish I didn't spend X amount of dollars on Facebook marketing. 
um, or or oh, I wish I wish we had, <laughs> you know, just just li- little things like that, right? But but that is, uh, I, I I wouldn't say I would change anything so much that I have any regrets. Cool, that's a great answer. Um, and then, kind of looking ahead in your career, yes, are there any? particular aspirations or inspiring people that push you to better yourself? I mean, when you retire, what are you hoping to be able to look back on? You know, it's, I've never been asked that question before. Um, and, and I think it's because in the startup space, you don't really get asked a question of think about your retirement. Um, so, so for me, I would say probably three things, because I think there were three aspects to that question. First is what I would like to see as, um, uh, uh, sort of the outcome of Cynthia, and and what I would really like is if Cynthia becomes um, almost an integral piece of how lawyers think about problem solving in the legal space. Um, right now, legal data is highly coarse, and if we can refine that, if we can make that information more visible and accessible, people can make better decisions. And it's not just lawyers, it's anyone that's impacted by contracts, by laws, and so on. So having that as an outcome would be amazing. Um, and in terms of what I would like as a legacy, um, what I would like when I'm retired, I, I would like people to have achieved great things from having worked with Cynthia. So my immediate team, I know they're going to leave eventually. They're going to go do greater and bigger things. And I want them to go and achieve greater and bigger things. And then one day get together and have a beer. That would be amazing for me. Um, And when I'm retired, I'm going to need drinking buddies. And that's who I would like to see. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I, I hope it touches people in a positive way. It makes a lot of sense, and it certainly has the potential. This is a huge tool. It could be a game changer. I think that the same kind of revolution that we've seen in a lot of other industries in the last decade or so, you know, in the financial industry 10 years ago, 90, 95% of trades were executed by people manually on a trading floor. Mm. And today, that's only a few percent of trades that are executed by people shouting in a pit. Um, and everything else is, um, executed by machines, directed by machines. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a human in the loop somewhere in some cases, but, um, certainly machine executed. And so with the legal space, you know, it's a little bit trickier of a problem because natural language data are a lot more complex than a ticker tape. You know the price of a of something moving around and uh, correlations between different commodities or whatever, but there's a huge potential here. When you're talking about any given law firm having hundreds of millions of documents, it's a huge resource that could be drawn upon to augment the capacity of an individual lawyer. And I, you know, it could very well be the case. I mean, it you could imagine. In legal companies, in a few years, Cynthia could be a verb. We use like, you know, the way we say to Google something, they use Cynthia, you know, the yeah. clause. Why don't you Cynthia that document? Yeah. It's, um, it is a, it's very much an underserviced sector. Um, and part of the problem in the past has been natural language processing wasn't good enough 
to understand and to weave through the complexity of these documents. Um, but it is, it is now at least starting to be good enough that you can take a lot of meaningful actions based on what the text of the document is telling you to do. Um, and so we hope we are riding the start of that wave. And if we were leading that wave, that would be amazing as well. But we think there are a lot of people starting to get into the space now, and it's going to be a, a very exciting uh, and, and very active space in the next decade. Nice. So uh, a question that I always ask near the end of these guest podcasts is, what are you reading right now? Do you have any book recommendations? I, I don't have a specific book recommendation. Uh, my, my reading list at the moment comprise of um, uh, a lot of sales and, and, and sales technique books that I've downloaded onto my Kindle. So, so this, this bad boy here. Um, and found your not, life. Found a life. And they're not necessarily great books. They are books that tell you pretty much the same things in different ways. Um, um, but what, what I discovered about myself is I'm not the strongest salesperson in the world. Um, and in, in fact, uh, the books would tell me that my sales technique is the exact inverse of what I should be doing. I don't put any pressure on and, and <laughs> I need to put a little bit of pressure. Um, you know, uh, giving a sense of scarcity, for example, and, and, and putting in deadlines and those sorts of things. So a lot of those books right now um, and trying to distill them down to a few principles that I can apply to what I do as a business. Nice. Yeah, I think that at the stage that your business has evolved to, I can see why that's kind of the key skill set that you need. So I suspect a couple of years ago, you were digging into a lot of Python and natural language processing books. And now that the technology has matured a little bit, you've grown the team a bit and they're handling a lot of that. You're like, all right, we've got to get the sales machine rolling. We, we, we got to actually get the customers to pay and don't just put them on pilots. <laughs> so yes, that, that's where most of my mental energy goes these days. Beautiful. All right. So I've learned a lot today. I think it's been obvious. I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. How can they contact you or follow you? Oh, well, you can absolutely contact me and reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, Horace Wu. Uh, you can find our website at Cynthia.io. Um, you can also find us on Twitter, but I'm not very active on Twitter. We don't have a social media manager yet, um, but the plan is one day to be much more active. Um, you may not be very active on Twitter, Horace, but I love your description of yourself on Twitter, which is some guy on the internet, very credible. <laughs> there you go. I, I try to tell the truth, John. That's uh, <laughs> we do. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the program, Horace. This has been a special episode where I've learned a lot. You being able to transcend the entirety of the startup experience for listeners from um, building the technology stack, the back end, the front end, how it interacts with clients, and even a little bit about sales. Uh, hugely valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, John. And thank you for listening, everyone. Oh, yeah. What a cool journey Horace has had from lawyer to machine learning startup entrepreneur. And boy, does he know his stuff? Inspiring how he's able to get it into the weeds on his company's models and software stack despite having no formal scientific or technical training. 
goes to show that success in data science is ultimately all about combining together thousands upon thousands of Google searches. To summarize today's topics, we covered what the legal tech space is, the huge commercial opportunities emerging for applying data science in the legal industry, such as flagging contentious language in contracts for extra scrutiny, or fully automatically drafting an airtight, exactly appropriate clause like Horace's company Cynthia can do. How to bootstrap a startup without outside funding by continuing to work in another career. The cool parallel between definitions in legal contracts and functions in software. The Cython and JavaScript heavy software stack for building real-time model feedback as a convenient Microsoft Word add-on. And how critical thinking may be the most important skill to succeed as a data scientist or engineer at an early stage AI startup. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Horace's LinkedIn and Twitter at superdatascience.com slash 455. That's superdatascience.com slash 455. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where we have a high fidelity, smiley face filled video version of this episode. I also encourage you to follow or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter, where my Twitter handle is at John Crone Learns to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your comments or questions in public and get a conversation going. You're also welcome to add me on LinkedIn, but it might be a good idea to mention you were listening to the Super Data Science Podcast so that I know you're not a random salesperson. Finally, since this podcast is free, if you're looking for a free way to support my work, you could leave a review of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, on Amazon or on Goodreads. You could give some videos on my YouTube channel a thumbs up. Or if you happen to have an O'Reilly subscription, you can give my books or videos a star rating in there. To support the super data science company that kindly funds the management, editing, and production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com, or you could consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Super Data Science, such as my own Machine Learning and Data Science Foundations Masterclass. All right, it's been another great episode. Keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.